Welcome to this Choice Wisdom full interview with Dustin Steger. He's the author of Blame This Book and the principal partner at The People Brand. Dustin encountered two transformational points in his life where he identified that he could blame blame for the outcomes that he experienced. But instead of embracing resentment, he chose to research the concept of blame and how it impacts relationships, especially in workplaces, and wrote a book about it. Now, throughout the book, Dustin offers contrarian wisdom that flies in the face of today's management practices and helps his readers find pragmatic answers to the questions holding them back from being healthier, happier, and more profitable. Through this journey, he strengthened his faith, not only in his religious beliefs, but also his faith in himself, his co-workers, and humanity at large by seeing what was possible. I began our interview by asking him why he chose to write a book. When you look at it, you know, some people say, uh, you know, you write a book in order to make money or in order to uh, achieve a certain level of fame or to, you know, maybe generate, use it as like a lead magnet to try to get some business in the door, right? So for me, it was pretty much none of those things because, you know, number one, you know, didn't, I probably spent more money than I'll ever make on it because the amount of research that went into it, um, the editing and the whole process of putting the book to packaging the book together and everything. I wanted to make sure that it was uh, you know highest quality I could put together. And I'm not really worried about, you know, is this going to be a moneymaker for me? And then the second thing, as far as fame, you know, I don't see this as an opportunity to, um, try to you know grab the spotlight and bring a lot of attention to myself. Uh, and so more so for me, it's about spotlighting something that I see is, you know, a huge issue within, especially within workplaces, but I think it goes broader than that. And so um, for, for me, it's because this all goes back to something that is very uh, precious to me. And I've always, I've worked in the creative industry. I worked in marketing and advertising. I uh, had a, uh, a period of time where I worked in business management consulting as well, but that proved to me, I learned a lot through that process and it was definitely valuable, but it proved to me that where I really belong is an area where I'm able to tap into uh, creativity and innovation and be able to utilize that. And I also have seen, I've been in business environments where it's really hard to do that. It's being, you're being suppressed. You feel like you can't bring all of yourself to the work that you're doing. You think other people are doing things that keeps you from being able to really uh, bring all of your creative potential to the work that you're trying to create and doing, doing important work at the same time. And so knowing that and sensing that in myself, I, I thought other people have to be uh, going through similar experiences. And there was a period where I was working for a company. We, one of our major partners was Steelcase and they're the global leader in office furniture. And they are a research-led firm. And so I'm working with them. I'm in marketing. We're taking their, their research information and helping utilize that to promote some of the work that we're doing as well in conjunction with them. And I'm reading what they're saying about, hey, there's this connection between your physical environment and how it impacts your ability to be creative and be innovative. And the, you know, not just from an individual perspective, but they're talking to leaders about this and this, your, your physical environment impacts how your people are able to be more creative and innovative. So seeing the benefits of that, 
And it was just, it was powerful. And I was reading that. I thought, you know what? This, this idea of helping companies and individuals tap into their creative potential and what can they do to get more out of that? How can they eliminate some of the barriers that they have? That's an idea that I, could, I can get behind that and I could just push that for the rest of my life. I mean, that excited me. It lit something inside of me. And so I started looking at it. I thought, okay, I'm, I've worked in the commercial interior space some, but that's not necessarily my major expertise. So what else is there? Other than the physical environment, what else is happening? And I started researching and uh, finding out about the psychological factors, right? When you ask about what keep, keeps people from being creative, when you ask what is, you know, um, really holding them back, people, a lot of times they go to the, the tried answer of, well, it's fear, right? And so it's, okay, well, that's true, but it's, there's more to that story. And just saying fear is what keeps us from being creative isn't incredibly helpful. And so you go the next layer, I start kind of peeling the onion back a little bit, right? Ogres have layers, but so do problems, right? We have problems, we get peel back the onion. And so going to the next level, fear of what? Fear of failure is typically the answer. And once again, it's, yeah, I mean, you hear that a lot. It's kind of cliche and maybe not incredibly helpful because there are still companies that there's failure that occurs, but they're able to still create an environment that uh, has that psychological safety in it and they're able to flourish and they're able to still be highly creative. Companies like IDO who does uh, design work and, and, uh, and they're able to, uh, they have this whole um, philosophy around design thinking that they promote and they have something that they call creative confidence is what they focus on. And that's about creating psychological safety so that people can be more creative, create that, you know, give people creative confidence. So how is it that companies like them are able to do that? But in other companies, there's failures that occur and it keeps people from being creative or innovative or even productive. Sometimes it, it hinders them from doing great work is probably a good way to summarize it. And looking at it, I thought, okay, if you take that, if you peel it just one more level, right? One more layer off of that onion, fear, fear of failure. And then what about that failure is so invoking that fear is that they are really afraid of the blame that comes from that failure. Blame, when it comes down to it, the, the, my definition for it is that blame is resentment that we have towards someone or something for a misfortune. And the way that you just simplify that is blame is resentment. And when you understand that, you realize, oh, okay, well, is, resentful, is resentment a helpful tool for leaders? Does resentment really foster responsibility and accountability? Does it help us solve any of the problems that occur? It, you know, is it a, you know, something that uh, is a good result after a failure that, okay, well, but then we were able to resent people and that helped us. No, that's, it actually becomes a distraction from the solution. And so as I discovered that, I realized, okay, this is something that I don't hear a lot of people talking about. And, uh, you know, there's some things that kind of dance around it, but nobody has really tackled this head on. And so then when you think, oh, well, somebody should write a book about that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, maybe and that I take guy's the, be me. Yeah, and so that that would be me. So that's a kind of a long-winded way to let you know. Like this, that's how I came around to. I had I had kind of some starts and fits, or fits and starts on. You know, hey, let's. Um, I I started illustrating a book and made it very simple. And then I went to an editor and he told me, okay, you've written a really good book to yourself because it was really simplified, right? And it was real kind of high level, pithy little, you know, quips and stuff in it and uh, cute little illustrations to go with it. And, and <laughs> I love and that. he said, but now what I need to do, he goes, when I hear you talk about this, there's a much bigger message than what's in what you've put together so far. And I think you have another book inside of you that you can bring to, to the rest of us. And so I spent um, probably six months on my book that I wrote to myself. And then I spent another year and a half writing the book for the rest of you guys. So um, and now it's launched and it's out there. So two years of my life put into this. So uh, that uh, is pretty much how what brings us here today where, um, you know, I wrote a book. That's amazing. I love how you described all of that. And I love how you also described that you wrote the first book only for yourself. I think your editor was just brilliant in, in presenting it back to you that way. Because, I mean, how many times do we, you know, put something together? You've worked in the creative field. I work in the creative field. And then have somebody only say, yeah, mm, no, <laughs> that's, not, right. that's not the right thing. And you're kind of like, you're a little crushed inside at the same time. <laughs> um, but at the same time, they're pushing us to do more and right. pushing us to dig a little deeper. And it sounds like that's what your editor was doing for you. So... Thinking back, so two years ago, so sorry, oh, I hit my mic. So two years ago, you started writing it for yourself. Then you transitioned into writing the book for everybody else. What, how is your life different now that you've written this book and done all this research and discovered all the insights that you have? Okay. So first off, I would say, if you ever decide to write a book, I would warn you to be really careful about the topic that you pick, because now whenever... <laughs> whenever I start, you you know, trying to leverage blame with my my wife or my kids, you know, they bring. Oh, oh, wait, you can't. You know, are you resenting me for that? You know, so they start using my own words <laughs> against me. So you know, you got to practice what you preach. So be careful what topics you choose. Um, but then for me, it has been uh, you know just a process of discovery, and you know, there is um, there's a certain amount of enlightenment I think that you gain from reading any book, basically. And to me, books are probably the best ROI that you can get as far as the investment that you make, uh, you know, and what you get back from that. And so to me, there's probably very few things that are as valuable as a really good book. But for writing a book, it has been amazing to me how it allowed me not, not only to, to gain insights because I had to read a lot of material from other people. So the process of researching this, there's probably, you know, um, you know up to... 10 books probably that help support the message that's in my book. And so, you know, there's 10 books of inspiration that then become crystallized into, okay, now I not only have the inspiration from, the, you know, these eight to 10 books, but I'm also having to synthesize this through my own beliefs and my own experiences and create something that says, okay, here is a framework from all of this that I, I believe in and I think can make a difference in other people's lives. And, it, and at the same time, it's make it, making a difference in my own life because I see how I'm dealing with my resentment in different ways now, how I'm recognizing when something crops up either you know, with, a, with a client, with my business partners, 
with other relationships that I have personally. And it's like, okay, now I have to practice what I preach. And do I really believe the words that I put down on paper or was that just all for show? And so it's, it's impacted me. I think I'm be I'm able to two things. I'm able to handle that resentment in a better way. I think I'm also able to see a situation and identify, Oh, I'm not going to get distracted by resentment, by blame, by trying to scapegoat somebody else. That is all a distraction. And I'm willing to set that aside and really look at what is the problem and what is the solution in this. And it sounds so simple, right? But we get distracted from that all the time. It's human nature. We've been doing this for centuries, basically. And so to get around that, to get around that innate habit that we have, each of us have that human tendency to blame and to shift blame to others and to scapegoat others. You know, it, it's showing me where I've been doing that myself and how I can manage that better. Oh, I love that. I love that when you're learning about something new, you learn something about yourself. How, okay, so you've learned a lot about who you are in this process. But leading up to that, and I'm sharing this story because you share it in the book. Um, leading up to that, you had a health crisis after a significant failure in business. And, you know, if you look at the person you were then and the person you are now, how do you feel like if you had known some of these principles earlier, do you think you could have headed that off? Or do you think that that was meant to happen in order to help open your eyes to a new way of doing things? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say there's, it's really hard to say which would be truer. Um, I think that if I, if I did have these principles to begin with, it probably would have benefited me to avoid that. Um, what, what felt like a health crisis at the time, what put me in the hospital, um, and doctors thought I was having a stroke and coming to a place where I really did not know if I was going to live to see the next day and the, the fear that I had to face with that, that probably without entering into that crisis, I don't think that I could understand the weight of this message, the value that it has for us, uh, and maybe wouldn't have pursued it as uh, vigorously as I have because I see how it played out in my own life and how, you know, we, it, the, the, the body keeps score, right? That all these things that are happening inside of you when you're dealing with blame and resentment, when you're, you know, feeling resentment toward others, when you're dealing with self-blame and all those things were happening with me, right? I had people that I felt like, you know, I, I felt resentment for other people. I felt resentment for the situation that I was in. And I felt, um, you know, blaming myself and resenting myself at moments because I felt like there were things that I could have done better and mistakes that I made that contributed to the situation. And while all those things are true, uh, that resentment was just like a venom building up inside of me. And eventually that and the, the financial consequences that came with that business failure and the stress that was related to that all came crashing in on me. And so I realized for me that I can't continue to live like that, that the next time 
I'm in the hospital. It might be an actual stroke. It might be a heart attack. It might be something else that, you know, maybe would lead me to a place that I wouldn't be able to recover from it. And so I have to, you know, there's some changes that I made um, in my, in my life, but also in my mentality that had to change in order to avoid continuing down that same course. Incredible. And how much of a role did your personal faith play in that? Right. Yeah. So faith for me, it's, it's incredibly important. It's been something that um, my wife and I have both, you know, been raised in uh, households where, you know, going to church, um, having a, a basis of faith was very important to us. And I think that there's a lot of traditions around that. There are a lot of things that uh, you think are really, really important about it. And then later on in life, you start realizing that, you know, some of the you know aspects of it that you focused on, like, is, is a music really good at the church? You know, <laughs> things like that. that you know, <laughs> do they have coffee in the lobby? You know, it's like, those aren't the, the important facets of it, but understanding that, Hey, there is somebody there's, it's not all up to me. Right. And I think for me, I don't know how much of this factors into the message of the book, but for me personally, there's an understanding of, I can't, I can't do all of this on my own. When people read the book and as you, you've encountered with the audio book, you know, there are some, some Bible stories that are in this. You know, we go back to, you know, I talked about earlier, this is something that's ingrained in us and we've been doing it for centuries. And if you look at the uh, the creation story of Adam and Eve that is uh, found in uh, the Judeo Christian Bible. It's found in the Jewish Torah and it's found in the Muslim Quran. So they've got three major religions that make up more than half of the population of the world are followers of those religions. And that core story of uh, original sin and uh, people disobeying God. And then not just a disobedience, you know, they eat the forbidden fruit, the only thing that God said they couldn't do. And then when they're confronted about it, what do they do? They don't take responsibility. Adam doesn't say, oh, my bad. That's all my fault. I'm going to take responsibility for that. No, he shifts the blame and says, the woman made me eat from the fruit. And then when she's asked about it, it's like, oh, you got two people in all creation, right? These are the first two people that live. It's got to be him or her. Well, now it's just her, right? It's got to be her fault. And she says, no, I'm going to blame the snake. And so there's this blame shifting that happens and you wonder, okay, is that original sin really that they ate the fruit or is it that they blamed somebody else? And then it's interesting to me that then you go and you see, you know, some of the stories that follow and about uh, in Leviticus as uh, Moses lays out the law for the Israelites that he has this ritual of a scapegoat where they actually take a live goat and they put all the sins of the people on the head of that goat and they send him out into the wilderness, supposedly to die. And basically that that is removing the blame from their society. And so it's a helpful tool for them at the time, but then there are societies at the same time that were doing that with actual people, right? And, and they were scapegoating actual people and taking, oh, here's the, all these things that are happening in our society, all this violence that's escalating, all these horrible, you know, plague or whatever. We're going to take all the blame for this and we're going to put it on an individual. And it's typically going to be somebody that's an other, somebody that's of some sort of lower status. You know, they're a foreigner, they're a traveler, they're 
a prostitute. They're a beggar. They're somebody who has a disease. And so they're an easy target and they put all the blame on them and they remove them from the society. And that, you know, actually, you know, that is what, how they find this remedy, but it is all about kind of removing the pressure from the situation and not necessarily solving any, anything because that person may have had nothing to do with the problems in their society, but it just helps everyone feel better that something was done. The leaders have taken action. They've decided, and now we can move on. But then eventually, since they never actually address the issue, then it just all happens again. Right. And that happens. So that's another story. You know, the, the whole idea of the scapegoat, being with the Bible as well, but then it translates into something that tells us, you know, it tells us something about ancient societies and how they dealt with violence and destabilizations of their society and that pressure that builds up and they utilize blame in that situation. And then you say, okay, that's ancient society. What's that have to do with today? Because now we have these sophisticated justice systems that have replaced that scapegoat mechanism. Uh, But Within our business workplaces, we don't have those sophisticated justice systems. So you see something very similar to that primitive scapegoat mechanism that is enacted within a business where you have a failure, you feel pressure, people are waiting for the other shoe to drop. There's this cycle of blame that occurs. It destabilizes you know, a team, a division, maybe an entire company. It can feel like it puts it at risk. And then the leader feels like they have to take some sort of action to make something happen. And they take all that blame, put it on one person and remove them from their group. And in a business environment, you know, a lot of times it ends up with somebody being fired that may or may not have had anything to do with the actual failure in the first place. And so what happens inevitably, that same failure occurs again because the scapegoat was a distraction from the actual solution. I love that you tie it back to because, you know, faith is an important part of a lot of people's lives. And if half the world has a creation story, I mean, it's early on in the creation story, the the whole story of eating from the tree of life and, or the, you know, the fruit yeah, of right. yeah, that's very early on. So it's like, that sets the stage for the whole rest of that big book. Right. <laughs> um, yep. And we're all, it, but the thing is, is it, all the religions, I think, in the world, not just the big three you named, all have sort of a central tenet of love and love one another, right? You know, that's actually written in the Christian Bible in those words, but it, everybody's kind of got that same philosophy, right? That we are all one and we share this planet and we're humans and, you know, all of that. And so everybody can get on board with the idea of if the big fault and the trip up we have in this idea of loving one another and providing the grace to each other that we need is because we're just defaulting to blame without thinking. I mean, how world changing could that be when you sit back and think, Oh, I'm not comfortable in this situation or I'm feeling like uh, this guy's out to get me. Right. You know, it's like, he's doing this on purpose, but to sit back and say, no, let me think this through a little bit and take a deep breath. Am I just kind of defaulting to blaming this person rather than trying to discover what's truly going on here? It's not just a feel-good love. It is a love of, I am actually not going to resent them, and I am actually going to try to resolve this situation And because that's how we make our world a better place. You know, to 
you know, use a cliche term, but it's, but it, I believe it's really true that we can make a better world when we set resentment aside and saw, and then just look at how can we fix the situation? What are potential solutions? How can we move forward in a, in a positive and gracious way? I love that. And, you know, getting comfortable with the discomfort because, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable to deal with personal accountability and personal responsibility. Sometimes I love how you said, sometimes it's just easier to go find someone else to blame while it's all his fault, you know, or it's all her fault. Yeah. You don't want to take a share in that, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but it's not my fault. Well, and your interesting point about forgiveness too, um, that's one of the hardest things for people to do is to actually forgive someone. But at the end of the day, and you uh, quoted this in your book too, that famous quote of, you know, it's like taking poison and hoping the other person dies, that lack of forgiveness is only hurting you. Right. And no one else. Yeah. Forgiveness isn't for the other person. Yeah. Basically. It really is for you to help you move on. And I think that is, and, and that's what brought me to the place where I realized that that was me taking a poison and took me to that place where I end up in a hospital and fearing for my life, you know, that, that literally could have killed me basically holding on to that resentment. It's toxic. And it's, and this is the same toxicity that creates that kind of internal environment for us is what's creating the more external environment in these workplaces that, you know, people are, you know, when we have the pandemic and then, you know, Hey, let's come back to the office. Yeah, no, I'm not going back to that office because I, after being out of that water for a while, I realized that's pretty toxic and I'm not going to go back. I'm going to go, you know, to this other pond over here. That's got a healthier milieu to it. Right. And, or, you know what? I think I'm good. I'm just going to retire. And we, so we have, you know, um, people that are opting out of the workplace and they either like, I'm going to stay in a remote environment or they're opting out completely out of work and saying, I'm done with this because that wasn't a good place for me to be. And I think culture is difficult for us. You know, I talk about it at the beginning of the book and like, it is water, right? It is what we're swimming in all the time. And so we don't realize how it's affecting us until we remove ourselves from that water and we have that choice to return to it and realize that, you know what, I, I have choices. And so for employee em, for employers, this is something that they're going to have to tackle because that, that war for talent that's happening right now and how hard it is to attract and engage and retain talent. If you've got a toxic workplace, you're just making that much harder and you're working against yourself and just creating that revolving door that you're constantly going to be battling with to try to, you know, keep great talent within your four walls. Such an excellent point. And there's so many, so many theories on where things go wrong in the workplace, but I love that it's like you said, no one was really talking about this specific situation of blame and scapegoating and how it relates to toxic workplace culture. And it doesn't even have to be toxic, toxic. It's just, if you don't feel psychologically safe in your workplace and you're not going to pipe up and say, right. you know, I, I guess I see a problem here, guys. And I think we need to fix it. Um, because then you're going to worry that everybody's going to go, oh, you're crazy, you know, or, oh, you're just trying to cause trouble 
or, you know, then the inevitable failure comes and everybody sort of dives for cover under their desks, thinking I don't want to get yelled at by the boss. Um, and it does keep them playing small, you know, and the world doesn't need small right now. I mean, it needs expansion. And yeah. I love that you have written this book. So are there three maybe key takeaways you would love our listeners to consider in the blame game? What are three things that people can think about in, you know, stop, think, listen type approach yeah. to not blaming? Sure. And so, you know, from a business perspective, I share it, but I think it's, it's helpful in any relationship. The acronym that I use is CEO. And so when I'm, what I'm talking about is in relationship to expectations. And so part of the reason why we get saddled with blame is because expectations um, weren't uh, handled correctly. And the way that we handle them is through um, that acronym CEO, which is that we uh, first we express those expectations clearly. And so don't leave any ambiguity about what you expect. So as you're entering into a new project, as um, you're trying to work on an issue with uh, somebody that you have a relationship with or trying to work with somebody in any kind of capacity, you know, be clear about those expectations that you have and allow them to be clear about their expectations as well. And then secondly is the E, which is early. So express your expectations early. If, so let's use the, the business world again, right? You're working on a project, you have somebody that, you know, your, your employee that you've tasked with the project, and then they come to you and they present to you, you know, the work that they've done. And you look at it and you're like, this isn't at all what I expected. What I expected was, and that's the first time that you actually share those expectations. That is completely unfair. And we do this all the time. So don't wait until the middle of a project to have to course correct or the end of a project to become, you know, uh, disappointed and frustrating your employee, share those expectations early. So clearly, early, and then the last point is often. Because our expectations, typically, we're the ones that are thinking about that most often. And so we think, we say it once, everybody should remember it. Well, especially on like a longer project, you're going to have to remind people. Don't forget, here's what we're expecting out of this. This is what we're trying to accomplish. This is what I want to see. Remind them of those expectations often so that you can put it to the front of their mind because all that's at the front of their mind is their own expectations. So communicate your expectations clearly, early, and often. And I think maybe uh, another tool that they can utilize is uh, to understand motive attribution asymmetry. And that's a fancy term basically for grace for me but not for thee, that whenever we fail or whenever we hurt somebody, that we know our own motives. We know our intentions were good. And so we assign a positive motive to what we did. But then when somebody else fails or somebody else hurts us, then we assign a negative motive to them. We think that, oh, they were trying to hurt me. Oh, they, they hate me. They have an agenda against me. You know, they're greedy, whatever, right? And so we assign a negative motive to other people. We assign a positive motive to ourselves. And so that's that motive attribution asymmetry. It doesn't go both ways. It's unequal. So then if we can understand that most people are just like us, they're trying to do the best that they can, and we can assign more positive motives to them 
and make that motive attribution more symmetrical across the board, then I think we're able to offer more grace to other people at the same time. And what I speak of in the book is that I think for a toxic workplace, for a toxic relationship, for a toxic world that we might be in, that grace is the greatest antidote to that toxicity. And it doesn't mean being a floor mat that people can walk all over. It's about not holding on to that resentment and instead saying, how can we make this better? Running wild, nothing to lose. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Choice Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host and creator of the podcast, Gail Goodman Lynch. The opinions expressed by my guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owner or producers of this podcast. The information shared on the podcast is intended to inspire you, but is not presented as financial, legal, or medical advice. Choice Wisdom is produced and edited by the amazing team at MZ Studios in Dallas and is part of the Co-Equal Network. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. For more information, please visit choicewisdompodcast.com. Have no regrets forever and ever always young